Hello. Well, as you can probably see from the title, this is going to be a spicy video. Um, I have not made these sorts of videos before. I, uh, I do realize they're very popular on YouTube, but I have not done so uh, up till now. Um, but uh, I felt like it was important to do. Um, so I'll start by saying that I think Mouth Infidel is dishonest. He uses this sort of dishonest tactic in his debates. It is no longer the case that you, we are discussing or debating ideas in good faith, but a sort of attempt to, or his style is an attempt to bury you with details, leave out details that um, do not help his case, and in the cases I'll discuss in this video, outright lie in his um, approach to kind of give like a complete package where you have some truths, some lies, and in total it looks like a very compelling kind of um, message. I, uh, I recently saw a debate between uh, Martin Fidel and JF, who is this um, French-Canadian um, YouTuber, I suppose, and he's known for being like a sort of social Darwinist. And this whole debate kind of really upset me because it was very strange. On the one hand, um, you have someone like Mouth Infidel saying, I, I like socialism, but, uh, but in fact, capitalism is pretty much built into my understanding of what socialism is. Uh, and on the other side, you have a social Darwinist saying, yeah, we like capitalism because it kills off the wrong people. Like, it was just, just insane. So what I would like to do now is I'd like to go over uh, Mouthy's side of the debate, analyze it, see which parts are truthful, which parts are not so truthful, and um, just, uh, I don't know, trash talk, in quotes, in quotation. Anyway, so let's start. Okay, cool. So I guess I'll go over like my opening statements and I'll uh, tr kind of try and address where I disagree with JF a little bit on some of the points. Um, so I think there are a few reasons why uh, capitalism, uh, specifically the sort of free market capitalism with, uh, you know, little to no social welfare and so on that I believe JF advocates for. Um, would not be a sound way to uh, maximize societal utility, so to speak. Um, so for one, a free market uh, distributes economic resources based solely on the marginal productivity of each unit of capital and labor in an economy. So this is the first lie. So the idea is that a, uh, a capital economy distributes wealth. Capital economy does not distribute wealth at all. It's not a fixed pie where you uh, need to distribute it across people who are deserving or some who are not deserving. Um, there are people who produce some things and, oh sorry, everyone produces something and then people trade what they've produced. If you go into a job, you, you, get a, you get a wage, you produce something in that job, you take the money you earn from the wage and you buy something like a, a loaf of bread that someone else produced. 
Um, so it isn't the case that distributes any any damn thing. Um, and the other thing is, and Mouth is going to get into this a bit later, is that uh, this definition of capitalism means that some people are excluded, specifically uh, um, children and the elderly. Now, just uh, to add, the elderly, in the, even in this context, the elderly do have their own capital, they have their own savings, and the children do have capital distributed from their parents. Um, and in addition to that, under capitalism, you do have things like non-profits, charities that do distribute wealth in the same context, although I'm, I don't believe it is distributing, but in this context, uh, distribution happens in this way. Anyway, let's continue. Um, which will produce massive levels of in, uh, economic inequality for a few reasons. Um, for one, around half of the population works nor owns a considerable amount of capital, meaning their true factor income is around zero dollars. Two, there are considerable productivity differences between different jobs, which means high wage differences. Uh, and three, capital is uh, distributed extremely uneven unevenly, which is, uh, uh, and so capital payments are very uh, unequal. Um, economic inequality tends to be bad for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, because people's desires and estimations of their quality of life is relative to this uh, society that surrounds them. In that case, people in socialist countries must be extremely happy because everyone is extremely poor and extremely equal in their income. Uh, having high economic inequality leaves significant amounts on the lower end of that distribution uh, to suffer unnecessarily. Uh, here is a conflation, um, conflation between um, not having wealth and suffering. So he is his whole system is built on utilitarianism, meaning people shouldn't suffer. But the only metric he has for that is less money equals uh, suffering and more money equals happiness. There isn't like... I'm very poor but very happy, or I'm very rich but very unhappy. It's 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 a very specifically tied to money, or in some cases uh, availability to healthcare. Um, additionally, it's just an inefficient allocation of resources due to the fact that it allocates uh, crazy disproportionate amounts of resources to people who are already very rich and benefit very little from receiving them in terms of marginal utility. So again, we have the uh, fixed pie fallacy here, that money comes into the pie and is distributed unequally am amongst people. I mean, if, if one person gets it, another person does not because it's, uh, it's fixed. And um, in addition, he's applying marginal utility, which is something that uh, uh, Marxian Marxians wouldn't necessarily use because it came after Marx and it kind of like attacks uh, the label theory of value. Uh, while leaving considerable amounts of people completely uh, economically screwed. Um, also, economic inequality can be shown to lead to a variety of other adverse outcomes, such as uh, worse economic growth. I, I have not heard anything like that. I think he's lying here or stretching the truth very much. Or even if he has something that says that is true, I, I'd like to see it because that makes not a lot of sense unless he's comparing... Um, uh, African countries that have a lot of economic inequality and very low growth. Increased crime, decreased social cohesion, worse mental health, etc. Again, I would say pretty much pulling it out of his ass. Um, I would say with regards to crime, I have several studies, Harvard studies, that says that an increase in welfare in, uh, increases uh, property crime. Uh, 
two Harvard studies in the US and one in, in Europe as well. Um, another issue uh, with this free market capitalist society is that, again, about half of all people don't work and shouldn't work. Uh, this includes children, the disabled, the elderly, caretakers, etc. Um, and this is actually, by and large, why the poverty rate, uh, at least in the US, uh, is as high as it is. Um, a system that distributes solely on the basis of market income is a society that creates very high levels of poverty. Absolutely no connection between what he said, and it's not really mentioned here, but as we'll go on, he's going to conflate uh, income inequality with uh, poverty as synonymous. Due to the fact that about half the population is locked out of receiving a market income. Uh, additionally, uh, the system that JF advocates for produces a high level of alienation, which is substantially harmful to people's well-being. Um, studies have shown internationally somewhere from 70 to 80 percent of workers, uh, according to Gallup at least, uh, feel disengaged with work, which so many people spend so much of their life at. So here we have the second uh, Marxian theory in the talk, uh, alienation. This is a survey done uh in businesses for people people in businesses and um i would take it with a pinch of salt i i can also very easily say well you know i, I could be more engaged at work i i'm on a scale of of you know one to ten if i'm not super engaged at work therefore it's it's a negative um but this is more like a I, I would say a tweaking factor for companies to say look if you have more engaged workers then you will get more productivity out of them they'll be happier you'll be you'll be richer, so it's a, it's a win-win situation. So this is the sort of thing where you would read in um, business schools and about how to be a better manager, not a critique of capitalism. Um, which is correlated to a lack of control uh, and influence over the business that they work at. Um, there's also the problem of the non-correspondence between what's profitable and what's overall good for humanity. Um, so, like, if you create a Venn diagram, there's certainly overlap between what's good for society and what's profitable. For example, I would say, like, my clothes were profitable for someone to produce, and they happen to be useful. Um, but there's a significant amount of non-overlap as well. Uh, in other words, if something is profitable to do and not good for humanity, it's pursued by companies. And if something is good for humanity but not property, uh, but not profitable, it is uh, not pursued by companies, which leads to substantial net harm uh, being done to societies. So this is uh, an interesting point being raised here. Um, so in in general, there's a theory of what profit is, which I'm not going to get into here, but. More or less, it's to do with if you want to make a profit, you need to make people happy or make their lives better, then they will agree to pay you money. And you that is the only way to, to get money, especially long term. Um, so if it is profitable for companies, in a sense, anything could be profitable for companies as long as government doesn't step, uh, step, in, the, step in the way in, in the sense of making it more difficult to start companies and start working in particular sectors or, or the the barrier to entry is higher due to government. Um, and again, we've kind of skipped over the whole area of people helping people in the terms of non-profits, because non-profits is, is kind of ignored completely with this Marxian analysis of, of uh, a society or an economy even. So uh, what could be the case is that people can join forces, freely associate, like let's say a people in a town, they can't get the local internet service provider to, to uh, lay a cable all the way to them. 
because they're so remote. So what they can do is they can, uh, you know, put all the money together, uh, pay someone to lay a cable from the nearest internet exchange to them, split the cost between the town, or, or get the the town can get a loan to that if they all vote on it together, and uh, then you know you could freely, well, freely once it's paid, freely um, put uh, wireless throughout the whole town so everyone has internet internet access. This has been done before, and it's just another way of, of showing that people can solve problems together without the involvement of the government, taking their money, using it very inefficiently, and when I say inefficiently, Mouthy already admitted that the government is not interested in being profitable, it, therefore it is not interested in being efficient with the money to be profitable either. Uh, the efficiency of the money is of no concern, because it can just make more, take more. Um, so, it is preferred if people can help each other. That would be the uh, best route, in my opinion. Um, so a socialist society that redistributes wealth through welfare, puts ownership in the hands of the public through a social wealth fund and nationalization of certain industries, as well as encouraging sectoral unions and some uh, perhaps some co-determination policy um, would take care of all of its members, uh, not produce gross economic inequality, um, align uh, economic decision-making with the good of society, and wouldn't produce pervasive and soul-crushing alienation. But it's entirely still capitalism. There's still capitalism, it's not gone, it's, there's no workers owning the means of production, people can still get rich, but they can't get rich as much as they have done before. So how exactly is this socialism? I have no idea. Um, so I guess that's like my pitch. Uh, in terms of where I disagree with some of what uh, uh, JF says, um, he made the argument that redistribution causes uh, dependency. Um, I'm not sure uh, uh, if that holds a lot of empirical weight. Studies have repeatedly found that of all the recipients of welfare, almost like 100% of them are either working or have a family member who's working. Okay, so here is another lie. Um, Jeff potentially could have uh, been talking about what's called a welfare trap, which is when you've received welfare, if you start working and you don't earn as much, then the welfare would uh, stop due to the fact that you're working and then you would actually be losing money if you start working. So it, it's very common, it's available on Wiki. And um, what uh, Mouthy is doing here is saying, well, we're taking again the poverty and, and income inequality as uh, synonymous and the people who get money, or what's called families that are struggling, and, and again, families that are struggling is more the income inequality than it is outright poverty, it's just he's just mixing things around and, and frankly being very dishonest about it um studies have found uh, like behavioral economic studies have found that i think uh from a study from uh mofit that um uh the work disincentive effects of poverty um affect its uh uh anti uh poverty uh sorry let me rephrase that. The anti-work incentive effects of welfare reduce its anti-poverty effect by about uh, approximately 0%. Um, as far as the idea that like public schools are bad, I guess, um, this just doesn't really happen to be true. Uh, studies have repeatedly found that um, uh, public schools are uh, 
cheaper and lead to better outcomes than private schools. Wow, wow, wow. This is shocking. So now apparently the public schools in America that fail poor communities, that people, sorry, that kids in those uh, schools come out with barely able to read, barely any literacy, barely able ability to do math. Now they are really good, especially compared to uh, private or I would say charter schools. But I think Jeff later commented that he didn't even make that comparison. He made the comparison between homeschooling that uh, during the, the lockdowns that uh, parents started homeschooling and untrained parents were better than trained union public teachers. This is such a in-your-face lie that it's just shocking. Um, in terms of quality, um, as far as like uh, higher taxes and stuff leading to more corruption, um, this also doesn't happen to be true. Um, if we look at uh, like the 10 least corrupt countries in the world, according to uh, the Transparency International's ranking, um, on average collect like 23.64% of their GDP in taxes, while the 10 most corrupt countries for which uh, there is data, data available collect only 14.5% of their GDP in taxes, according to the World Bank. So I think what JF was meant in his talk, which I'm not playing here, was uh, with regards to regulatory capture, uh, where uh, companies get very com um, comfy or friendly with the uh, regulator to pass certain laws that either help the help the, that company or help that company get rid of the competition. Even if it comes at a slight cost to them, it completely gets rid of the competition. Uh, and I think <laughs> I think Malthus counter to this is basically again take uh, the European countries with the highest rates of tax, compare them to, and are not corrupt, and compare them to the African countries that are all corrupt and don't have a high taxes. Oh, look, there's no connection. It's like, well, you know, regulatory capture is very much a thing, and uh, something, and people who deal with corruption uh, look at it very much. Um, central government expenditure as a percentage of GDP is twice as high in the least 10 corrupt countries compared to in the 10 most corrupt countries for which there is data. Um, even if we take the whole world as a sample, we find a positive relationship between government size and institutional quality. Uh, the correlation between total tax revenues as a share of GDP and institutional quality being 0.34 and the correlation between total government consumption as a share of GDP and institutional quality being 0.39. So notice a few things here. Um, you, If you're listening to this not through my uh, um, commenting on it, you are gone. That's it. You, you cannot retain any more information. You're either, if you're on Malthus side, you're either repeatedly nodding your head till your neck hurts or... Um, you you are upset that it 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 sounds like he's done a lot of research and he has a, lot, a very strong case. You've you've basically been overloaded by details here. And again, he's comparing African countries that may not have uh, a very strong infrastructure, certainly not the rules of law, and um, with uh, established uh, countries that you know have more uh, established institutions and and whatnot. But saying that a bigger government doesn't lead to more corruptions in the term of regulatory capture again that is insane um but he's just thrown so many numbers at you 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 don't know what to do with it 
but again, it's not. We're not discussing the ideas anymore. It's just tactics and dirty tactics as well at that. Um, I'm not sure. I was kind of confused by this argument about how um, it leads to uh, unproductivity. Um, if we look at the specific institutions that I'm advocating for, for example, uh, unions. Um, taxes and social welfare policies, these kinds of things have been repeatedly empirically found uh, uh, to actually uh, spur growth. Yeah, another shocking one. So unions, high taxes and high social welfare policies, policies spur economic growth. Not sure where to begin with that. Uh, unions, at the very least in this context, are sort of, um, to put it, <laughs> to put it, not so lightly government cartel, in a sense that they are banding together and increasing the prices in the same way a bunch of companies would band together like a cartel and increase their, their prices. Uh, so I don't know how increased prices increases uh, economic growth unless you know prices, because it, it's a sort of inflation on, if the product that that union, that the company that the union is in is making if the prices of that product goes up, then it's a sort of inflation. And, and if you mean, if you mean, is inflation a sort of economic uh, growth? Then maybe, but uh, I, I'm not sure I would consider that. Taxes again, like you are taking money out of the economy through taxes, through productive areas of the economy, and putting it into the government and doing things which are necessarily unproductive. But you, you, that's not your goal. It's to do something else than being than being. Uh, economically productive. So just pr on principle, that doesn't make any sense. And I think what is going to make uh, soon the case that uh, the social welfare policies uh, increase um, entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial companies to start up and innovations, but I, I have a point on that as well. Um. I'm not convinced that we need to allocate um, all of these resources towards people who are already rich so they can continue innovating, especially when we know that uh, social welfare redistributive policies um, do things like increase the numbers of startups because there are a lot of people who would be innovative um, but don't get to realize their innovative capacity because they're afraid if they lose their job then they'll lose their health care or something like that. Um, I know Gareth Olds has done a lot of good work on this showing that social welfare policies increase startups. Right, so what he neglected to say here is that uh, the countries that he's advocating for in the Nordic model uh, so like Sweden, Norway, um, they have uh, incredibly high youth unemployment and they also have very low immigrant labor participation. And this is partly due to the fact that uh, the wages are very high, there's uh, unions throughout both, very large unions throughout the, those countries and uh, which surprisingly the unions don't get actually get any government uh, protection, there's just the unions versus the the companies directly. And um, because it, it, it makes it more expensive to hire someone, including like someone that, that just came out of university that has no experience. So to add a job for a young person is very difficult in those kind of societies, or economy, sorry. And um, as a result, some of those people in order to find any work, they need to create their own startup. Otherwise, they won't have nothing. They'll have several years 
passing without any uh, ability to gain experience in the job market, so on and so forth. So they are necessarily forced to start their own company. Now, if, for example, you're saying that to some degree you're imagining that if uh, there's security in case your startup fails, so you don't have to worry too much, I mean, you know, that's a that's an okay point. But at the same time, if you were able to raise capital, then you're able to put some of that aside in case something something happens. To to the same degree, you can say that to start a company in a country that has high taxes is a sort of attack on the risk that you are taking. So if, for example, you're risking capital and uh, things things do work out, let's say, then 50% of your taxes will go go away to the government. Although I think that in those countries, they're relatively um, okay with uh, taxing companies, but very not okay with taxing individuals. So um, if you are taking on that risk and you get a reward from that risk, you get to keep barely any of it, meaning the risk isn't really worth the attempt. And you may as well just become a, or stay a perm uh, employee because you get all these benefits anyway. You don't have to take any risk. Uh, you just, even if you do earn a lot of money, it will be heavily taxed. So what is the point? Uh, but but here in these kinds of countries, because you're unable to find any companies, that's why you're a, that's why you need to create your own. Um, there was a study um, which found that uh, from policy and society, which found that more social spending policies show a positive correlation uh, or a po- positive causal relationship with innovation. So uh, I had to research this. The thing is, the definition of innovation is dif- different. The makeup of what constitutes an innovative country is how many uh, people have a master's degree, undergraduate, PhDs. Uh, how many patents they file, all these sorts of elements. And to some degree, like, you you have all these metrics, but at the same time, we all know, like, where most of the innovation comes from. It is the U.S. I mean, we all are day-to-day... A lot of our day-to-day stuff is from the U.S., certainly in terms of um, uh, tech companies that we use often, and perhaps, like, certain mobile phones and things of that nature. So, I mean... Sure, I mean, you could say that they're innovative, but they're innovative by some sort of artificial artificial metrics and not by how many goods sold from that country. So, for example, if you can think of anything that you buy specifically from Sweden, like what comes to mind would probably be IKEA. Uh, a few things comes, comes to mind about uh, some companies that deliver certain software that I'm familiar with in that region. But all in all, it's not, well, it's not large countries as well but if for example you have an idea in from those countries you you may just not start a company there or, or save your idea move to america open a company there and then uh sell your product there because you'll get uh, more more reward for your um for your work and to some degree i would say that to get innovation in countries uh a very big and I would say uh, widely agreed upon um, a bit of, well, let's say, principle is the better the or the stronger the uh, property rights and the stronger the intellectual rights in a particular country, the more innovation you will see from that country. Certainly, the U.S. led this idea in 
1790 or around the time when they were writing the constitution there were intellectual property rights built in and america went from a largely agrarian society to a very innovative country in a very a relatively short span of time i think it by the end of the 19th century they're already highly industrialized so i i don't really agree with this point across OECD countries, even accounting for other factors and so on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's like an okay story, but I, I just don't see anything JF is saying like being borne out empirically. Right, lastly, this uh, empirically, uh, JF has failed to do this. I don't see this in the data. Well, you're not really looking at the data, are you? You're just trying to make up a story that fits your narrative. You're not trying to find the truth of what is uh, going on. Now, maybe maybe you could say the same to me, but at the very least, I'd like to have a civil conversation, maybe even, a, even in a debate about ideas, what is right, what is wrong, not about what is posturing, what is tactics to, to make the other person look bad. It's, I don't know, it's not as interesting. Maybe some people like that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm missing the bit where Jeff responds, but his response is outright disgusting. It's, it's basically, <laughs> basically he's saying... He's giving a squirrel example, and he's saying if you feed the squirrels nuts and they're not, um, they don't need to survive, or they don't need to work out for those nuts, then you'll increase the population, or they'll be dependent on you, or you'll increase the population of bad, bad in quotation squirrels, and and this is basically what capitalism solves. Like it kills off, <coughs> it kills off the squirrels, and like, um, and I'm I'm just I, I just can't couldn't believe what I'm hearing. Like the idea of capitalism is that it helps human flourishing because it allows humans to be free to pursue their happiness, free to innovate, free to think, free to work in whatever they want. And even even in Jeff's like idea of evolution where there's like sort of like environmental stresses so only the the strongest survive, we haven't we've had like a abundance of food for like, some years now. So I don't exactly know what environmental pressures are there on the human race and it's not necessarily like we need to worry about these sorts of things because all we we do need to worry about is perhaps if you have like uh, sorry is for us to have in each field a handful of experts that can move the field forward across many different fields so we we keep progressing uh, technologically and scientifically and make those discoveries available to everyone in the world so I don't I don't know. Anyway, the the whole JF thing was not something I can get behind at the very least. So I'll I'll uh, put now Marthy's reply to JF's comments. Okay. So a few things. So um, I think you said there's a problem with socialism and that the government uh, can get people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, the problem here is that I think this is actually a good thing. So for example, we can see that um, most people uh, by themselves wouldn't just choose to like give money to charity or at least give enough money to charity. Okay, so if I recall correctly, Jeff was saying that um, if you want people to help one another, then just, you know, ask them or, or they can volunteer to do so and Martin is saying, no, I think it's better that, that they're forced. And here he's going to say that because the government is so big and can take so much taxes and has a lot of resources due to what it takes, 
then it can do more than charities can do. And I think he'll speak about charities later on. But even in this example, I actually, res I, I believe this, but I actually researched it and um, it turns out not to be true. So there's two points here I'd like to make. Uh, public social spending in the US is, I think in, for 2019, is 18.7% of GDP. Now I was thinking private would be way low, but no, it's actually not that far off. It's 12.6% uh, of GDP. So they're obviously 6.6% uh, difference, but there is a study uh, conducted about government efficiency, and this is important to this point, that uh, how much money from the taxes that are collected end up in the pockets of welfare recipients, both from the uh, public system, so, so government welfare, and private charities. And it turned out on average, and again, I'm, I'm using uh, averages here, that the government keeps or keeps around 70% of the taxes it collected for itself for administrative overheads and whatnot. And I don't mean like keep in its pocket, pays its is very large bureaucracy or number of contractors or whatnot. And charities are, who are much more efficient with that money because they're essentially competing for people's contributions. And if, if they are inefficient with that, they will lose those contributions. So on average, it's 30% uh, is lost in quotations to administrative overhead and infrastructure. Now, if you take that 70-30 split and apply it to that money, you would find out that the money that actually people receive from the government after collected from tax is about 5.6% of GDP. And with charities, it's 8.82% of GDP. So I, uh, after doing some research and not believing mouthy, I started to, to realize that it, this, these numbers are not entirely true. Um, but when the government forces people to give money to uh, support uh, uh, poor people, uh, then that actually leads to a positive outcome. This is why private spending in private charity doesn't actually or hasn't actually been seen to correlate with reductions in poverty. So uh, what Mouthy is doing here is that he's again, he's conflating uh, poverty and income inequality. Um, that what he's essentially saying is that charities do not change income inequality, uh, which is to some degree true because that's not something they're going after, and uh, and governments do. So the the thing is this, and to some degree, like you can also say that there's, there isn't always an overlap from um, the point of view of something that the government spends for a charity to come in and compete with the government. There's no point they'll compete in something else. But just in terms of of poverty it, itself, I mean. Poverty and income inequality, sorry. If you had two people knocking on your door and asking to donate to charity, one of them saying, would you like to contribute to fight income inequality in your area? Or would you like to contribute to, fi to fight poverty in your area? Whom would you contribute your money to? So I think most of you would say to fight poverty. And um, that is something that we should be going after, going after to to. Uh, fight poverty to increase our economic growth to a point where poverty is eliminated, which is something the the UN uh, UN global that are trying to fight poverty are trying to do. And um, I don't think this this uh, addressing income inequality is necessarily helpful. I don't even think it's it's what we should be going after. Certainly, poverty is something we should be going after. And here, Mouthy like conflates the two constantly. 
So you, you don't know if he's talking about poverty on one sense, but he's saying poverty, but it could mean income inequality, or he's saying income inequality, but it could be meaning poverty in a sense which makes his case seem better. Whereas government welfare does significantly uh, uh, reduce poverty. Um, so I think that if the government can get people to do things through compulsion that they otherwise wouldn't do, and the result of this is that we don't have children living in poverty and everyone in society uh, or ma mass swaths of people living in society can be better off and not be doomed to poverty. Um, I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, so Malthe has a bit of an active imagination here, uh, just trying to conflate his point a bit further. But what I would say, I think I may have uh, forgotten to mention it earlier, is that actually charities are typically, in, in the case of poverty, typically more effective at government in getting people out of poverty. I, I have seen uh, studies from charities obviously because they are the one that trying to claim that they're efficient with your money but for argument's sake they are saying that um, they are three times more effective at getting families I, I remember the the data was about families out of poverty entirely like they they needed some help they had some very uh, specialized help from that particular charity had a more hands-on approach a more community-based approach I believe and families were lifted out of poverty three times higher at the, at the rate that the government was. So the government kept them, uh, well, not I wouldn't say kept them, but they stayed on government welfare continuously while these people were lifted out of poverty. Um, you said that capitalism punishes bad decisions, um, even if your parents made them. Uh, that's a good thing. If you don't recall when I laid out um, why uh, uh, poverty is as high as it is, it's because of people who are locked out of uh, market income because they're disabled, uh, because they're old, because they're uh, like elderly and can't work, because they're children. Yeah, so once again, old people typically have savings, children typically have their parents. I mean, obviously, there are, except, you know, there are extreme cases where old people need help, children need help, and parents can provide for them. Certainly, disabled people who are unable to work need help. But we, we have those, that, that infrastructure. And if you think, in a sense, that um, the percentage of those people are, is really very, very low. It's not 50%. It's more like 1% to 3% of the population then we are more than capable of, of helping those people, especially if we have a richer society, a society that's allowed to go out, be productive, make money, to then very easily, it's not, it's not even like a very big sacrifice to donate a bit of money to these charities. Um, because they're uh, care, caring for someone else, uh, like in the family. Um, I fail to see how you can connect any of these characteristics with decisions made by these people or made by their parents. And I don't see how letting people live in poverty because uh, they uh, are children or elderly or disabled um, punishes bad decision making in any way that leads to um, any sort of positive outcome in society. Um, so I guess you'd have to explain to me how punishing people for circumstances that they have no control over uh, leads to better incentives that create a, a more uh, flourishing society. Fuck you, JF, and your fucking squirrels. Um, you th I think you said that I don't have a philosophical pillar of what bad things are. So um, 
you, this was not included in this uh, clip, but it, it means that uh, because it's utilitarian, you don't have a philosophical principle as to what it is you're looking for. Because if it's something subjective like less pain and less suffering, then, sorry, less pain and less suffering, more happiness, then uh, it is a very subjective thing, which could mean different things for different people. But I'll, I'll let Marty continue. Um, and that productive societies understand this. Uh, and the reason we can't have, we can have socialism is because it's a parasitic grift that lives off the productivity of capitalism. Now, here is something I would actually agree with Jeff. Yes, the whole setup that uh, Mouthy is presenting, his socialism is parasitic on the remaining elements of capitalism in that society. And it's, it's by design. So, um, you need capitalism to make money, or you need, let's say, a mass and mass of uh, natural resources in your country to, to then to then be nationalized, so you can pay for all these things. It's not something that creates. Obviously, it's not even attempting to create anything. It's something that is necessarily parasitic on the economy doing well. If you have uh, unions, it's to increase the the wages of, of the workers. If you have um, the government has like a wealth fund so in this case he's not exactly explaining it but uh there's a wealth fund from a large oil reserve that then buys stocks in other companies but never a hundred percent of those companies because you, you want them to make money you just want to to siphon off the access to to access is the word he uses uh maybe not in here maybe not in here but uh, in other places uh so it is entirely parasitic or at the very least rent seeking uh, from the actual economy or the productive uh, economy? Well, um, a, a few things. Um, I guess my philosophical pillar of what a bad thing is, um, is generally uh, what is subjectively not wanted when experienced uh, uh, by people in society, right? This is like the classic definition of uh, uh, pleasure and suffering used by utilitarians like John Stuart Mill. Pleasure is what is wanted when experienced. Um, uh, uh, suffering is what's not wanted when experienced. And I don't think it has to be any more complicated than that uh, in order for us to create policies aimed at uh, maximizing pleasure and maximizing societal utility. To be honest, that's actually quite a difficult thing to achieve. Uh, just, I want more I want more pleasure, I want less pain is... Yeah, it's uh, very, very difficult to calculate, to guess, to predict, to do whatever. I mean, if, if you're just using things like more money equals more happiness, no matter, like, just like as a sliding scale, the more money, the better, the, the less money, the worse, then um, maybe you could, maybe that you could do something with that, because then at least you have some numbers, but uh, otherwise I, I, I see that as actually very difficult philosophically and uh, politically to achieve. Um, the idea that productive societies are productive because they're capitalistic, and if a, a productive society has socialism, it's just because of a parasitic grift, um, doesn't square well with empirical evidence suggesting that um, uh, redistributive policies uh, actually increase productivity. Actually, they don't, and even by definition, they don't. Um, in societies, uh, so for example, we can look at a study showing that um, uh, uh, programs, social programs like unemployment insurance uh, increase economic growth. Now, this is uh, interesting. I have not heard that uh, unemployment insurance 
outright increases economic growth, at least that, that's not uh, its main function. It's not my understanding that it's connected, but it might be it might be true. In a, in which case, I mean, there is unemployment insurance available to regular people. I was uh, able to take it out when I was self-employed. And there's even uh, such thing as poverty insurance for like a, a, a town doesn't want any um, people in their town to become unemployed or, or somehow get into poverty. So there's poverty insurance where everyone in the town voluntarily chips in a small, a relatively small amount of money compared to what the government may or may not take. And uh, if anyone in the town becomes loses their job or severely, uh, I don't know, loses the loses a lot of money at, at one go, for example then uh, this uh, poverty insurance kicks in. So, I mean, uh, there is uh, market uh, opportunities for that, and, and certainly you could say how much money you want to, if it's employment insurance, you can choose what packages you want, and if the poverty insurance, if the company was uh, acting badly, you can switch it with someone else. So it's there's more options in the free market for this reason, if it is the case that... Um, unemployment insurance increases uh, economic growth. We can look at studies from OECD and the International Monetary Fund showing that tax and uh, redistribution policies have a positive causal impact on uh, economic growth and economic productivity. Yeah, so I don't really buy that. I mean, I can appreciate that if a country is able to borrow money uh, to stimulate economic growth, then sure. Uh, and certainly that is a Keynesian kind of approach that uh, Mouthy is kind of describing. But uh, that the government takes out money from the economy and just just like not being mean or anything, puts it into less productive uh, endeavors by definition because the market would have been more productive due to competition, efficiency, caring for profit, whereas not caring for it then uh, yeah, I don't buy it. Um, like this argument just doesn't really hold up empirically. Um, you said that welfare is increasing, which means there is dependence. I don't know if that means there is dependence. So uh, here Marthy is replying to Jeff saying that um, the welfare has gone up, the, the incline of, wel of welfare spending has gone up significantly since the um, war on poverty started. And it's not looking like, the trajectory isn't looking like it's, flattening off by any means so at some point you will actually run out of money it's not not funny uh, and this is only like the part of the things that the government needs to um, pay for so it needs to so for example right now the debt is close to 30 trillion there's also about 220 trillion worth of uh, pensions that, that don't need to be paid immediately but at least they need to be serviced and uh, so th this is in fact a very real concern um, in the sense that people feel more dependent on welfare. Um, I think welfare is uh, generally increasing in the US and other places, the trajectory isn't exactly the same. Um, but I don't think this is evidence of a bad thing um, because something is increasing over time doesn't therefore mean that it's causing any negative outcomes. Yeah, so doesn't doesn't really know what he's talking about doesn't know the significance of how severe the the stakes are in this. Doesn't care as long as the uh, argument is, is won. 
when everyone is uh, flat broke or we run out of uh, oil money, then yeah, people will, will then start to care and then Mouthy may start to care as well. Um, you said if we could fix injustices with welfare, it would have fixed itself already. The mistake you're making there is that the problems that need to be fixed by welfare aren't like one-time things. And then when we fix them, they go away. And the fact that we still have welfare means that it's not effective. The problems which welfare addresses are ongoing problems, like the fact that market, uh, uh, market income distributions don't distribute income to people who are like children or disabled or elderly, those kinds of things. So again, he's repeating his previous points. Um, Jeff was kind of saying like, you paid so much money into it that uh, why hasn't it been fixed? And to some degree, things like poverty or, or generational poverty, if you um, get people onto jobs and, and, and uh, things like that, then they will eventually come out of poverty. And that's kind of the idea. Like you're supposed to help them get out of poverty, uh, not not necessarily keep them there forever. And like, you know, there could well be cases where someone is uh, disabled and cannot work. And for that, uh, you do need to keep um, helping them in an ongoing manner. But uh, at the trajectory that it is at the moment is, is insane. Like it's, you can't honestly say that uh, this is a positive thing. We need to spend more money. This is, if we need, if if the claim was we need to spend money, solve it, or solve fifty or seventy percent of it one in one large go, then yeah, people may pay towards that. But th this is unsustainable. What uh, Mouthy is ignoring. So we wouldn't expect welfare to fix it as like a one-time thing and then go away. Um, you brought up the point about institutional quality. You said that, like, of course, they correlate with government's uh, in involvement because um, obviously the government has more money. I think you just weren't really understanding what I mean by the metric of institutional quality. So when I'm talking about institutional quality, I'm talking about things like, uh, and this is in the academic literature, we're talking about things like um, the level of corruption in the government. We're talking about things like uh, rule of law. We're talking about things like government effectiveness. We're talking about things like government accountability. Sorry, I snorted when he said government effectiveness. Um, so, I mean, to some degree, I would say this. Uh, if you're conflating government with all the welfare policies and the things that government does actually well, such as um, the army, the, the police, to some degree, not, not many will agree, but protection services, resolving disputes, uh, justice and things like that, then technically those things are government things that government are is efficient at, it does them well, and um, should do more of them and should tweak them. Um, obviously, people will argue about uh, the police thing, which, you know, I, I can take on, fully take on that those kinds of comments, but um, I wouldn't mix those with welfare because uh, the studies show that the welfare the government uh, does is is between hopeless and hugely inefficient. Um, so yeah, um, lack of violence, um, political stability, absence of terrorism, these kinds of things, which are pretty objectively desirable. Um, and if we can show that, um, government, uh, size, uh, correlates with these kinds of institutional qualities, um, then I think we can pretty safely conclude that, um, 
uh, government isn't, uh, bigger government isn't creating all these kinds of corruptions, which is the claim that uh, you initially made. I uh, I will agree with Jeff here. The bigger the government, the bigger uh, likelihood for corruption. The bigger the government, the more control it has over the people, uh, both uh, political and economic. The less freedoms the people the people have, the more regula- regulatory capture um, there can be. Um, l- a very large governments, you could say, such as uh, the USSR or uh, Mao's China, had a lot of corruptions. I don't think any side of the political spectrum would disagree with that. Um, so I do, I would see a connection with bigger government and corruption. And even um, specifically an example that Malthy is um, recommending where you have the government buying up stocks in, in companies so that the profits from those companies um, go to the whole of the population. Even in that kind of scenario, you have a situation where the government is in bed with uh, large corporations in the economy and it now suddenly has an interest to protect those uh, companies and pass laws and regulations that um, secure their investment. So for example, um, a real example, uh, the De Beer Diamond Mining Company had um, went into the region of South Africa and in the case of Botswana it uh, had an agreement with the government to mine the diamonds there, and the government had a 10% stake in the company, or 15% stake in the company. And uh, the bills were the diamond monopoly for quite a few decades as a result of this sort of uh, behavior between the government and the, and the private sector. I mean, the government should at best, or ideally, be like a sort of referee it shouldn't be an active participant or or, or a route for one side over the other. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess that's like the broad thing. I also like, you keep going back to this idea of like an inefficient allocation of resources and socialist systems, but I guess I'm not, because you said that that's the point you wanted to emphasize at the beginning, but I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. There, there is more to the debate and I'll link it in the description so you can see the whole thing. But for the context of, of my video, I think this is enough. So just to go over some of the points, you know, even the premise of this debate is is wrong, is a, is a lie in a sense, because he's not advocating for socialism. Any Marxian socialist would not, would not be for that. They would see this as a sort of continuation or keeping capitalism on life support indefinitely and, and will delay the revolution. This is a sort of uh, Nordic model, which is a social democracy. I mean, there are other people that use this exact model. Maybe Mouthy is a bit more, has a little bit more elements of uh, welfare programs and social wealth funds and whatnot. But uh, I mean, even even the examples that he uses, a lot of them is from Norway. And Norway is a small country with 4 million people sitting on a, on a large oil reserve. And uh, yeah, I mean, still, yes, you can do all these things with this, with these oil reserves, but um, I mean, e- even now, Norway is heavily dependent on them. I mean, 88% of their GDP is, is government activities. Of those are, uh, a large amount of those are um, oil and gas. So, and if, if you wanted to go for a more accurate social model based on this sort of natural resources plan, then you do have other examples 
and I'm sorry if this uh, offends anyone or triggers anyone, but Venezuela is very similar. Venezuela has the largest oil reserve in the world. The second one, the second country ranking after Venezuela has one third the oil that Venezuela does. And it uh, was much more active in its socialist policy. So it had 100,000 co-ops. It took land, agricultural land, away from the rich and gave it to the poor. It uh, nationalized, obviously, the oil sector. It nationalized, it, uh, nationalized some banks, some companies in the finance industry. It helped people uh, set up their own kind of companies and funded them, like even if they were losing money to compete against the... Uh, private companies there's even like a video of uh chavez going around and says what's this place expropriate it yeah it's like this is much more consistent with socialism and we know what the result is even even with oil. now norway for example hasn't spent all its money as frivolously as venezuela did because venezuela uh, funded a lot of programs it, it gave oil very cheaply to its citizen whereas norway everything is very very expensive the oil is expensive, the food is expensive, the, the rent is expensive, and the salaries aren't all that uh, to, to compensate for that. Uh, even I, I mean, I, as a disclosure, we have family in, uh, in Norway. I've been going there back and forth for about 12 years. And even, <laughs> even now, like we send, uh, we buy some things here, here in the UK, we, we, pack, we package them and we send it to Norway because it's cheaper to do that than purchase stuff in Norway. What is also really funny is that it's not uh, in, in the clip, but in, in the other part of the debate, Mouthy goes on about how evil companies are ruining the earth to make a profit. I mean, the whole setup of this socialist example that you're giving is based on fossil fuels. I mean, just because a private sector does it, it's, it's evil. But when, like, uh, when the government does it, the oil no longer harms the planet. It's fine. There's just, it's just a lot of contradictions. And it, to be fair, like... That's one of the things that it actually does make it Marxian, the, all those contradictions. Um, but yeah, anyway, not honest, don't trust the statistics, keep trying to find the truth, and uh, yeah, thank you for watching the entire hour-long video, I appreciate it very much, and I hope not to make too many of these sorts of videos in the future. Bye.